Welcome to True Crime Mamas Podcast, a podcast dedicated to crimes and mysteries in North Carolina. I'm your host, Susanna, and today we are back with our very own Christina and Amber. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 Awesome. Are you guys getting ready for fall? Well, as much as I can. As much as you can. Slowly but surely. I'm like ready for all things. Pumpkin spice, nutmeg, cinnamon, all the things. Yes. That's really the hard note for me. Which part? <laughs> well, I am allergic to cinnamon and nutmeg, so it's almost like fall is out to kill me. What? Oh, I know. No. So you literally can't have pumpkin pie spice. No pumpkin pie spice. <gasps> oh, and you can't have the, the no pumpkin. No PSLs. Oh. No, like... Apple, cinnamon. Can you do the candles like with the fake fragrance? No, I start wheezing. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, like I said, falls out to kill me. It okay. is. That's so that's not your favorite season when someone asks, right? Actually, it is. It is it's just so oh. sad. And then I just have FOMO the whole time. Yeah. That's, oh my gosh. I, I need know. pumpkin and scarves and leaves and boots and all hoodies. the basic things and, and the, the hoodies. Don't forget up. the hoodies. Yes. Well, at least you have s'mores still. True. True. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. As long as you don't do the cinnamon graham crackers. Exactly. Oh <laughs> well, we all know how we can secretly murder Christina if we need you. Yes. I'm just kidding. We would never do no. that. We love her. We would miss you terribly. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, let's get back into this um, Jason Corbett case here. So if you followed us last week, then you know that we got through part one of the Jason Corbett um, murder case. If you have not, please go back and listen to that episode before you listen to this one, um, just so you're not, you know, missing any important details. This is a really big case. So you ready? Let's do it. All right. Let's get started. On February 11th, 2016, Molly and Tom both pleaded not guilty, and on March 8th, 2017, the defense asked for charges to be dismissed due to their claim of self-defense. And, of course, that was denied. On March 14th, 2016, Molly's lawyers accused the clerk of court and the lawyers representing Jason's estate of hiding unethical secret conversations about the case. Typical Molly. Typical Molly. In a motion filed, attorney Walter Horton asked that the clerk of Superior Court, Brian Shipwash, be removed from the case. For Shipwash to hand over all of his communications about it and for a judge to re-examine decisions about the guardianship of Jason Corbett's two children. And, of course, denied. On April 12, 2016, a judge in Davidson County Superior Court granted a stay for a court order that would have forced the return of several belongings taken from the Walberg home. As part of the stay, Judge Class ordered that $601,060 from a life insurance policy, as well as money from the sale of the couple's Honda Accord, be held by the Davidson County Clerk of Court, Brian Shipwash. On May 10th, 
2016, detectives opened an investigation into the transactions relating to a bank account Molly Martins opened a short time after Jason's death. In her court application to probe the account, Detective Wanda Thompson alleged that she has probable cause to believe that within days of her husband's death, Molly Martins Corbett may have moved monies from joint bank accounts held by her and her deceased husband, and these monies were used to open a separate bank account in the name of Molly Page Martins. She added, Jason Corbett's alleged comfortable financial status provides possible motive for death. You think? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so she didn't even use her married name on that account. She no. She took that off completely. She took it off completely. <laughs> so finally on March 3rd, 2017, a trial date of June 17th, 2017 was announced. The judge in a pretrial hearing for the murder case against Molly and Tom denied a motion to have the trial moved to Moxville in neighboring Davie County. And what he ended up saying was a defense has failed to find community prejudice that they can't receive a fair trial. Um, D judge David Lee also said there is no showing of prejudice in the investigation or proceedings to preclude selection of a jury. Also, during the hearing, the judge deferred ruling on a motion to redact statements about witnessing domestic abuse that Jason Corbett's children made when interviewing at a child advocacy center after the homicide. Lawyers for the defense claimed that when the children were interviewed by child advocacy experts at the Dragonfly House, they were given detailed instructions about the importance of being truthful, and they were also told they could make corrections to any statement they felt were inaccurate. Judge Lee said that he preferred the lawyers argue before the judge presiding over the case at trial whether specific statements should be heard by a jury. So pretty much what they're asking for here is that when the kids gave the statements in North Carolina, they wanted those to be included. The judge is just saying, you know what? I'm going to step out of this until it comes time for the case. Right. Makes sense. So on July 16, 2017, Jason's family was given the opportunity to view the photographic evidence the prosecution intended to present. Oh, boy. Mm. This was to give them time to view privately and to help prevent public reaction. The evidence was brown. I can't imagine. So in addition to the photographic evidence, they also heard the police interviews with Molly and Tom. And there were just so many questions. Why did Molly have a paving brick on her bedside table? And we, we asked that. Yeah, we did. If this was truly self-defense, why were both Tom and Molly uninjured? Good point. Very good point. Where was Sharon during the incident? Why was Jason who never before slept in the nude, naked. The crime scene photographs were horrific. Some of the family members were so affected that they had to leave the room. Tracy described viewing this out of photographs as an assault on her senses, and they were like something you only expected to see in a war zone. I can't imagine she is so strong to be able to sit through that. I don't know if I would ever be able to look at them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I could. Uh, I mean, I've seen some things. But yeah. that, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know either. On July 17, 2017, the case finally went to trial. The decision was made by the prosecution to drop the charge of voluntary manslaughter and just proceed with second-degree murder. And we all said, hallelujah. Yeah. And, I mean, what's amazing about this is they were so certain that they were going to get the second-degree murder charge. So they didn't even let right. the um, voluntary manslaughter be an option. Yeah. 
And that's unusual because usually they let that one in there just in case. Yeah, it kind of like is an escape. Absolutely. Yeah. So additionally, jury selection began out of a pool of 143 individuals from Davidson County. Prospective jurors were warned about what they would witness in the trial. Mr. Friedman, attorney for the defense, said there are going to be gory pictures. There is no getting around that. There was a lot of blood in that bedroom on the 2nd of August. There was blood on the walls. There is blood on the floor, in the hallway, and in the bathroom. This is not going to be easy. Some people might get cozy. On July 20th, 2017, the Corbett family, on behalf of Jack and Sarah, filed a wrongful death suit against the Martins family. The lawsuit alleged that the defendant's actions caused Jason extreme pain and discomfort and death. The lawsuit sought a total of at least $50,000 in compensatory and punitive damages. I feel like it should have been so much more than that. You'd think it would, yeah. Yeah, but I guess maybe it was recommended. I don't really know why, but... Yeah, there had to be some sort of, you know, backstage things for, for that yeah. amount to come up. So on July 25, 2017, the trial formally began with an opening statement from Assistant District Attorney Alan Martin. The courtroom began to hear the awful story of Jason's violent death. He reinforced that Molly remained only a stepmother to the Corbett children, and there was evidence that Jason was considering moving back to Ireland without Molly. In describing Jason's death, he illustrated that while Jason was found naked and bloody with a crushed skull, both Molly and Tom had not even a single visible mark on their bodies. He said there was nothing the first responders could do to help Jason. He left the bedroom on a board with a head that was badly crushed. During the postmortem examination, pieces of Jason's skull fell out onto the table and other pieces of his shattered skull were driven into his brain. The damage was so severe that the pathologist couldn't determine how many blows were sustained, but said it was at least 10 times. Blood spray patterns indicated that Jason was struck when he was already down. He concluded that the state would try to address why. Why didn't they stop? And I think that's the thing that has just kind of stuck with me is like, if he was truly a danger to them, if he was down, he was no longer a danger. So why, why are they continuing to strike him? Yeah, that's my question. I mean, you don't kick a dog when it's down. You know, exactly. that old saying, he was down. Why not stop? That's, I know. It just sounds like absolute rage. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. I mean, you just can't stop. Agreed. The defense for Tom Martin stated in his opening remarks that Tom heard a disturbance above him, grabbed a bat, and went upstairs to find Jason holding Molly by the throat. Tom instructed Jason to stop, and Jason then threatened to kill Molly. He pointed out Jason's size in comparison to Tom and Molly and argued they both feared for their lives. He said that Tom acted as any father would given those circumstances. And, you know, I mean, I think about my own dad and... If he thought that my husband was hurting me, I mean, I know how he would react. So, Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. It makes sense. He's doing what any father would do. Yeah. Molly's defense attorney said that one single strand of blonde hair was found clutched in Jason's hand, but it wasn't preserved by forensics for analysis. He went on to state how important it was, but he never stated why. He also said that police statements indicated that Molly was in severe shock at the scene. And guess what? That was it. There was no other supporting evidence. So talks about hair and Molly being in shock. One strand of hair. One strand of hair. Yeah. Which, I mean, honestly, I mean, when I have long hair, I mean, I left hair everywhere. So, I mean, it just could have been a coincidence. Most people do. Yeah. Yeah. 
So just interesting. Very. So the first witness was called to the stand, and it was a 911 operator who received the call. But she wasn't allowed to give her testimony. Um, so the jurors only heard the 911 call. So she was able to tell everyone in the courtroom what was going on, but the judge decided that her testimony was more hearsay. So that's why they heard the 911 call. So all Karen Katz ended up being able to do was just confirm that she received the 911 call from Tom Martins at 3.02 a.m. on August 2nd. The second witness was Katie Wingett Scott of KPC Health Center. She confirmed that both Jason and Molly were patients. Additionally, she confirmed that Molly was prescribed trazodone just three days before Jason's death. So what's interesting is traces of trazodone was in Jason's system, but he didn't have a prescription. She did say that Jason had recently complained of high stress levels, anxiety, malaise, fatigue, and occasional feelings of being overwhelmed. And he was also referred to a heart specialist and would have had an appointment on August the 5th. The final witness was the pharmacist who confirmed that Molly had in fact filled her prescription of trazodone. So Jason had some trazodone. I mean, I think what's interesting is that it was her prescription that was found in his body. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think is interesting, it was three days before she got the prescription. It, It just kind of adds up to a little bit of, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. And the symptoms that she said that, you know, he had kind of like reading off a, a pill bottle, you know, yeah. it doesn't sound that exactly. makes sense, you know. Yeah. The following day, the prosecution presented the pathology evidence. Photographs were shown of Jason's body, which graphically illustrated the extent of his injuries. A total of 12 photographs were shown. In one photograph, it showed Jason's scalp was drooping off his head. Media tweets describe pictures shown on an overhead projector to those in the courtroom depicted an area of the skull where a paramedic's hand slid into the skull. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Doctors also identified an area in a photo of a blow that appeared to happen after Jason Corbett was deceased. And finally, one juror had to be led from court after she started throwing up. I'm surprised it was just one juror. I am, too. And, I mean... In my mind, where I'm thinking about a paramedic who's just trying to swoop in and save, and I, I just can't imagine uh, the shock and horror because I'm sure they couldn't tell what was going on. No, yeah, that, that would be a complete shock. I wonder if they're still a paramedic after that. So we were able to get a copy of Jason's autopsy report, and it lists his cause of death as blunt force head trauma. There were multiple lacerations, abrasions, and contusions of the head, including two large branch thickness lacerations of the bilateral periodal scalp. So pretty much it just meant that he had big cuts in his head, right? There were extensive skull fractures, and there was a hinge fracture of the skull base. So pretty much what that means, it kind of opens up and closes like a chest does. There were epidural, subdural, and subarachnoid hemorrhages. There was a ventral cerebral cortical contusion. There were scattered abrasions and contusions of the torso and extremities. And they also noted he was 72 inches tall and 262 pounds. And finally, the manner of death was a homicide. Two more witnesses appeared that day. A pharmacology expert briefly explained the trazodone in Jason's system and why it was at a subtherapeutic dose level. It was more than likely due to the amount ingested or the time lapse since the dose was administered. 
The final witness was Corporal Clayton Dagenhart of Davidson County Sheriff's Department. He was the first police officer to the scene. He was warned by a paramedic that it was bad in there, real bad, a horrible scene. Corporal Dagenhart testified that he had attended more than 200 scenes in which blood had been spilled in his 14-year tenure. He said that there was blood on the floor, fairly large amounts that already seemed to be congealed. There was blood on the bed, blood in the hall, and blood in the bathroom. I saw some on the floor, petals, and on the walls. It was starting to dry. He stated that Jason was found naked lying on the floor in a pool of blood with visible injuries to his face and head. There were large amounts of blood on his head and chest. He and another officer asked Tom and Molly to exit the home. They also decided it was best for the children to be taken to Sharon in the basement. In an act of complete empathy and compassion, the officers carried both children downstairs and asked them to push their faces into the crooks of the officers' necks so they wouldn't see what had happened to their father. The officers then drove Tom and Molly to the station for questioning. Bless those officers. At least somebody had a heart. I know. Oh, my goodness. You know, it just really um, speaks to the goodness. It does. It really, really does. The next day of court started with the paramedics who arrived on the scene. David Bent, Amanda Hacksworth, and Barry Alfin testified. Hacksworth testified that when she arrived on scene, Jason was pulled to the touch and there was dried blood on Jason's body. Of course, it put the Martins timeline immediately into question. Bent confirmed that the body felt pulled to the touch. This information, combined with lack of electrical signals to the heart and the severe head trauma, was why life-saving measures ceased around 3.24 a.m. Alvin testified that in attempting to move Jason's head, his hands and fingers slipped inside the back of his shattered skull. Jason's head was so covered in blood that the paramedics initially didn't know how severe the injuries were. Paramedic Bent also testified that when he went outside, he saw Molly lying on the ground. When he examined her, he only noted a faint red mark on her neck. He checked her eyes and didn't see any abnormalities. Molly claimed that she had been choked but refused treatment at the hospital. She even signed a waiver stating that she had made the decision independently to not go to the hospital. So he checked her eyes because obviously if you're strangled, you should have some blood vessels broken. Right. Especially as, as strong as she was stating that, you know, Jason had a hold of her. Yeah. And there was only a faint red mark. So there wasn't really anything to indicate that anything had happened to right. her. No bruising appearing or anything like that. So it probably makes sense why she didn't want to go to the hospital. Yeah. Hmm. So two more individuals testified to Molly's behavior at the crime scene. The first being former officer David Dillard, who was tasked with staying with Molly at the scene for approximately 90 minutes. He said, she was making crying noises, but I did not see visible tears. She was also rubbing her neck in a scrubbing motion. She would do it and stop, do it and stop. She was upset. I heard crying noises, but I did not see any visible tears. The other individual, Jason and Molly's next-door neighbor, David, testified about the events on August 1st as well as the events on August 2nd. At 3.30 a.m., when he got up to use the bathroom, he noticed the police and ambulances parked outside the Corbett home. At 5.30 a.m., he awoke to a knock on the door. It was Molly, accompanied by an officer, asking to use the bathroom. He noted that Molly was upset, and he did not notice any injury. 
So there was plenty of time between, you know, 3.30 to 5.30 where injuries should have been, you know, I think shown. I mean, you would at least yeah. think that bruising would have popped up. Because, yeah. I mean, I think initially, I mean, you might have marks, but bruises kind of pop up after a period of time. Yeah. But and still the neighbor didn't see anything. Nothing. So the final witness of the day was Lieutenant Frank Young, who was a veteran crime scene analyst. With this testimony, both the bat and the paving brick were introduced into evidence. The bat showed traces of volcanic ash used to lift fingerprint samples. The paving brick had obvious blood stains. Lieutenant Young said that he had recovered a strand of hair from the paving brick. Blows from the bat and the paving brick were so violent that Jason's detached scalp and hair were found in both the master bedroom and hallway. Jason's blood was found throughout the room. When the paving brick was lifted off the floor, it left an outline on the carpet. He also noted multiple indentations on the walls, which indicated where the bat had hit the walls, either after striking Jason or in preparation to inflict another strike. That is insane. It really is. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, we we'll put the crime scene image, images up on our website, right. but I just the brick. I mean, it it's almost it's shocking. Yeah, it, it is shocking to actually view because it's. You think you're ready, and you're not. You're not. <laughs> Lieutenant Young also evaluated both Tom and Molly's physical condition. He photographed Molly and did not note any injuries. He had to continue to ask Molly to stop rubbing her neck. Hmm. Typical Molly. Typical Molly. He did note that she had blood smears and spatter on her face and hair. It was indicated that the blood was not her blood, but instead Jason. Court ended for the day and started a long weekend. The next Monday, Lieutenant Young concluded his testimony. Various forensic experts testified to various tests completed, including fingerprints, blood analysis, genetics. The next witness was a co-worker of Tom Martin's. She testified that just four weeks prior to Jason's death, she had a conversation with Tom regarding his relationship with his son-in-law. She stated it was common knowledge that Tom disliked his Jason and his Irish family. In the conversation discussing his weekend, Tom said, That son-in-law, I hate him. She went on to say that Tom was not very fond of Jason and his rowdy friends. They were rowdy in the home, rude. It was general and open in the office of his dislike for Jason. The final witness was Dr. Stuart James, a forensic scientist out of Florida. He is one of the foremost experts in his field and is the author of a book on blood spatter that is now considered to be a key reference in forensics. He has testified in over 200 trials as an expert forensic witness. He was hired by Davidson County to evaluate the blood spatter evidence on Tom and Molly's clothing as well as throughout the bedroom, hall, and bathroom. Dr. James started his testimony with his analysis of the bedding. I'm going to let you read what he said. Okay. He said the pattern stains are on up on the bedding here, and the saturation stains is down on the skirting. There's an impact incident that took place here. That may well be where the bloodshed first occurred. I conclude in this instance that a bloodshed event occurred closer to the south side of the bed to produce impact spatters on the underside of the quilt. So pretty much this meant that Dr. James believed the first blow was more than likely when Jason was lying down in bed. Wow. So, they, so he wasn't struck by a bat in the hallway. Yeah, as Mr. As Martin's, the first, uh suggested yeah. there. 
And it seems to make a lot more sense than that, you know, curved hit that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. It's becoming clearer now. Yes, it is. So the next topic was Tom's boxer shorts. He noted the blood spatters on the inside lower hem of his boxers were in a different direction than the spatters on the front. He indicated the spatters on the inside lower hem were not saturation stains, but instead spatters that traveled upwards. More than likely, Tom was standing over Jason when a blow was struck that caused the spatter to travel up. Wow. So, I mean, that's pretty much the only way that could have happened. Right. Uh, so, again, we talked about hitting someone while they were down, and yeah. looks like there's evidence. There's still plenty of evidence that that's what occurred. Dr. James reviewed the blood spray patterns on the walls. While some of the walls had blood spray patterns from the bat striking Jason, other walls had large blood spray patterns from an impact type of transfer. This was more than likely from Jason's head hitting the wall as he was falling to the floor. Most of the spray patterns were closer to the floor, Dr. James concluded. These patterns are consistent with impacts to the head of Mr. Corbett as he was descending to the floor with his head impacting the south wall in the areas of impact. Some of the spatters can be attributed to his head impacting the wall itself as well as the object striking him. You can see the ray of spatters, a large amount of blood with downward flow patterns. These spatters were anywhere from five feet from the ground to just five inches. Wow. Dr. James's analysis of the bat and brick were horrifying. He described the brick as having blood on about every particular surface. Oh, wow. In my opinion, it is consistent with more than one impact because of the distribution of blood on all edges. The presence of blood on all surfaces of the brick is not consistent with a single impact. If you remember Molly's statement, she said she had only hit Jason when she was trying to get him off of her father. And in Tom's statement, he didn't even bring up the brick. Yeah, he didn't even mention it at all. So Mm -hmm. he just talked about the bat. So I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, he definitely got hit by that brick more than once. Yeah. I don't think something's adding up here. No. So lastly, Dr. James analyzed Molly's clothing and the remainder of Tom's. He stated that some of the garments were soaked in both Jason's blood and tissue. And why don't you read what he um, said about it? So my conclusions are these impact spatters are consistent with the wear of the, these boxer shorts being in proximity to the victim, Jason Corbett, when blows were struck to his head, the head being the source of the blood in this case. The source of the impact spatters is most likely the head of Jason Corbett while it was close to the floor of the bedroom. Goodness gracious. So that's just, I mean, that's saying he was struck when he was down. Absolutely. So after his testimony, court recessed for a few days because the judge had previous commitments. And the recess um, coincided with the second anniversary of Jason's death. So the recess Mm -hmm. was definitely a blessing because they didn't have to be in court during that day. And the Corbett family was invited to Jason's former workplace where they held a memorial ceremony for Jason. They had a balloon release, and it was near the tree that's been planted in Jason's memory. Nice. And actually, next to the tree, they have a plaque commemorating Jason. And I, I just think that's lovely that they have this permanent memory of him. That is. That just, that's an attestment to Who his was. character. Yeah. yeah. And then later that evening, the family was invited to join the neighbors in the Meadowlands. More than 20 gathered to eat and share memories of Jason. And everyone wrote private notes to Jason that were burned in the fire pit at the end of the evening. And I love the story about Jason. So um, every year on Super Bowl Sunday um, in the neighborhood, they had something called a big kick. And so um, 
Now they do it every year on Super Bowl Sunday where they honor Jason by having a big kick event. And so everyone who participates kicks the football as far as they can and the distance is measured. So whoever kicks the furthest gets their name on a ball that bears Jason's name. So when Jason lived in the Meadowlands, he was always determined to win the big kick. But as he said, he sucked and he was a good sport about being teased in regards to his lack of talent. <laughs> I love this story. That's a good story. I like that one too. So court resumed on August 3rd with the prosecution only having three witnesses left. The first witness was investigation supervisor, Lieutenant Detective Wanda Thompson. Her testimony was specifically about Molly's statement given just four hours after Jason's death. She did not read the statement, but it was handed to the jury for review. She confirmed that the room in which Molly gave her statement had both audio and video recording systems. The next witness was Jason's sister, Tracy Corbett Lynch. She was tasked with telling the story of Max's death and how Jason came to meet Molly, Mary, and moved to North Carolina. She also explained how Jason was planning to return to Ireland without Molly. Tracy had plenty of electronic evidence to bolster her claims. Even though Jason had yet to make travel arrangements, he had researched tickets and even had a reminder in his calendar to book the flights. The prosecution concluded their case with testimony from an executive from Jason's former employer. She stated that Molly had visited the plant only 48 hours after Jason's death in order to collect his possessions. I'll let you read what she said. She said, They came to collect the personal belongings from Jason's office. I did give her a hug. I saw all around her neck area. Molly had jeans and a t-shirt on. It had a boat neck and short sleeves. Her hair was up. I saw no injuries. I did not observe any scrapes, scratches, bruises, or swellings. Interesting. Very. As soon as the prosecution finished, the defense team again asked for dismissal. <laughs> the nerve. The grounds for dismissal was that nothing the prosecution presented disproved the argument of self-defense. Were they listening? No. Um, and Judge Lee, fortunately, um, agreed. He ruled that there were, in fact, substantial grounds to deny the motion for dismissal, and the jury would, in fact, be asked to deliberate on a verdict. Thank the Lord. Yes. Somebody was listening. So on Friday, August 4th, the 13th day of the trial, the defense began their case. Wait till you hear about this. The first order of business was regarding whether the statement Tom made about Michael Fitzpatrick would be allowed into evidence. So, Tom claimed he was approached by Michael Fitzpatrick, who's now deceased, mm -hmm. and that's actually um, Jason's first wife's father. Max. That's Max's father. Max's okay. father. Yeah, and so he believed, so Michael Fitzpatrick said that he believed that Jason caused the death of his daughter, Margaret. What? Yeah. And while the defense team said they weren't suggesting this actually happened, and they couldn't because Mr. Fitzpatrick actually made a sworn statement prior to his death, and he said in the sworn statement that he never, ever talked to Tom Hartz about it. And in fact, um, I don't even know if he met Tom Hartz. Wow. Yeah. Um, but what they're saying, that they're not suggesting it happened, but it was relevant to Tom's state of mind when Jason was killed. Judge Lee refused to allow the statement, calling it self-serving and prejudicial. He said, I have determined that the apparent value of this statement is outweighed by the prejudicial value and the potential to mislead the jurors. 
I like this judge. I like the judge too. And it's interesting because this guy, Mr. Fitzpatrick, he's refuting this claim, saying, I would never say something like that. And it's almost like they're trying to peddle Jason as this person who's a white killer. Yeah, they're, they're trying their best to make him look as bad as they possibly can, but they have absolutely no evidence whatsoever. No. Tom Martins was the first to take the stand. The defense started with Tom's credentials. They're pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. He graduated from Emory University. He served in the FBI for 31 years. And when he retired, it was only because he reached a mandatory age. And then um, he was married to Sharon. They have four kids, um, Bobby, Molly, Stewart, and Connor. And then after he retired, he went to work with the U.S. Department of Energy at Bridge, Tennessee. And his unit was dedicated to counterintelligence work. During his testimony, he also repeated the testimony of his co-worker who testified for the prosecution. And that member that one said that um, he had talked about Jason and how he didn't like him. Mm -hmm. didn't like yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, however, he didn't make any attempt to hide his feelings about Jason. And he said, he was not my favorite person. I did not like him. And I'm sure I said disparaging things about him. The testimony then led to the events on August 1st and 2nd. He confirmed that his dinner plans were canceled and a subsequent decision to visit Molly. He said that when they arrived in Walburn, Jason was intoxicated. After dinner and chatting with Molly and Jason, he and Sharon retired to bed in the basement bedroom. Next, he was awakened from a sound sleep and he heard thumping like loud footfalls. Then, he heard a scream and loud voices. He got out of bed, grabbed the baseball bat, and went upstairs to investigate. When he was asked why he armed himself, he replied, It seemed like a good idea. I was going up with something confusing, and I would rather have a baseball bat in my hand than not. I did not call 911. So, I don't know about you, but when I'm scared, this is kind of silly, but I already have it to 911, and I'm like ready to press two. Right. But... Apparently not him. No. I mean, most people would think, okay, something's going on upstairs, and it sounds violent. I'm going to call 911 first, then go upstairs. Or, like, hey, Sharon, will you call 911? I'm going to go check out the situation. Upstairs. Right. Right. And people forget that Sharon was down there. So, yeah, she could have called 911. They could have called Sharon. <laughs> yeah. So, once he determined the noises were coming from the master bedroom, he opened the door. And he said, in front of me, I would say about seven to eight feet in front of me, Jason had his hands around Molly's neck. I closed the door. I don't know why. I said, let her go. He said, I'm going to kill her. He said he was going to kill Molly. I actually thought he was going to kill me. They were facing each other. I said, let her go. He said, I'm going to kill her. I told him again several times to let her go. He was really angry, and I was really scared. He began to cry, but immediately the emotion vanished as he continued his story. He said he was afraid that Jason would get into the bathroom and close the door, and that would be the end for Molly. He then struck Jason with the baseball bat. He then struck him again to try to free his daughter, but Jason suddenly lunged at him, grabbed the bat, and sent him flying across the bedroom. Tom then jumped up charged across the bedroom, and tore the bat away from Jason. He said he wasn't sure how many times he hit him. He felt that both he and Molly's lives were in danger, so he did the best he could. After multiple blows to his head, Jason finally fell to the floor. Then, 
that's when we called 911. A little late. Yeah. Um, and it just also sounds like, I mean, Tom is not a young man, but I mean, he's jumping and charging. Yeah. Off the spry. Yeah. So when cross-examined by the defense, Tom stuck to his story. He said he had no recollection of paving brick being in Molly's hand. Well, if he was fighting so hard, I can understand why he didn't see anything. In yeah. He also said that Sharon never left the basement in spite of the situation going on upstairs. Silent Sharon. Mm-hmm. He never asked her to call 911. When questioned about his relationship with Jason, Tom said he didn't consider Molly to be in a good marriage and that Jason did not match up with what he thought his daughter's standards should be. Additionally, the adoption of the children was a point of contention between Tom and Jason. And I'll let you um, read what he said about that. Okay. He said, Jason represented to me that he was going to have Molly adopt the children. It became an issue when he did not follow through with that. At the conclusion of the cross-examination, Tom was asked if he and Molly had murdered an unarmed, naked man lying face down, helpless and blood covered on the floor of his own bedroom. Tom shot back. That is not the truth. I'm trying to take responsibility for what I did. I'm trying to tell you as truthfully as I can what I did. I made the decision to hit him on the back of the head with the baseball bat to end the threat to my daughter. I was aware of nothing at that point except my survival. He goes down. He goes down face down against the wall. I hit him until I considered the threat to be over. I hit him until he went down. That's all I know. Hmm. So the second witness was a character witness for Tom who called him an honorable person, a person of integrity, truthful, and reliable. Tom is a calm and deliberate person. I've never seen him get angry or do anything impulsive. At the conclusion of this witness, the defense asked the judge to include statements made in North Carolina by Jack and Sarah in 2015. Judge Lee ruled that he would not allow the statements into evidence. There is some evidence of recanning by both children, is what he said for his reason. With that decision, the defense's case was over. The following Monday, closing arguments were heard. There are four closing arguments total. Most notably, prosecution attorney Mr. Martin reportedly struck a table with a metal baseball bat to enforce the type of violence Jason endured. What he said was, they literally beat the skin off his skull with that bat and that brick. They, acting in concert, her and him, literally crushed his skull. They turned his skull into something that resembled a bad Humpty Dumpty cartoon. They beat him after the threat was over, after he went down. They hit him after he was dead. It takes a lot of force to crush his skull. They didn't just split his skull or rip the flesh off the bone. They crushed his skull. It takes I hate you force. He then explained the types of injuries that Jason endured, and he said they were similar to someone who would have been in a bad car crash or had fallen from a high distance. That's a powerful statement right there. It takes I hate you force. It is. And um, I was reading a couple of the tweets from some other reporters, and they were talking about that every time he hit the bat up against the desk, it, it was just like this resounding clang, and it was complete silence, but everyone kind of jumped. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, what a powerful closing statement. Yeah. And he finished by saying, why didn't he stop when Jason was on the ground? Why did he continue to bludgeon him? Why didn't they stop? 
malice, yes. Hatred, yes. Excessive, yes. The evidence is that Jason was retreating. He was naked in his marital bedroom and unarmed. His children were asleep in the house. The defense focused primarily on Tom being a loving father who was only acting to protect his daughter. Molly's attorney claimed that she had nothing to gain from Jason's death, that she was not in the will, that she had no assets. It was simply self-defense. At 3.22 p.m., the jury was sent to deliberate. At 11.25 a.m. the next day, the jury had reached their verdict. It did not take them long at all, did No. It? <laughs> the jury foreman confirmed that they had reached a unanimous vote. Both Tom and Molly were found guilty of second-degree murder. Molly immediately began wailing uncontrollably. She turned around and said, I'm really sorry, Mom. I wish he'd just killed me. Tom maintained his composure. Typical Molly. Before the sentencing, the Corbett family had the opportunity to give victim statements. Tracy had prepared statements for various outcomes prior to the trial. Young Jack had noticed and asked what she was doing. When she told him, he asked if he would be allowed to write a statement. Attorney Alan Martin read Jack's statement to the court. This is a tough one. (laughs) My dad's death has been life-changing for me and my family. My dad was there for me in every aspect of my life. My dad was always cheering me on in sports, school, and just regular life. I don't have that from him anymore. I always hoped after that night that he could see me score and try in rugby or score a goal or just see me succeed in life. He can't see that anymore. He won't be there for me if I get married or have kids. He won't be there for me or help me when I'm down or had a rough day. He will miss everything I do in life, the good and the bad, and he won't be there to give advice. I will never be able to give him a hug or a present or a Father's Day card. He won't see me grow from a kid to a teenager and into my adult life. It changed my way of thinking on life. I can never go to the movies and pass a ball without feeling bad because that's what me and my dad did. I just want to make my dad and my family proud. I don't know if I should call David dad because I don't want my dad to feel offended or feel like he was replaced. This is affecting my little sister a lot as well. She knows her daddy won't be there to walk her down the aisle. She'll never have a father-daughter dance, and Sarah and my dad have been planning one for ages. My family and I are not seen as we were before my dad was killed. We are now seen as the family of the Irishman named Jason Corbett, who was murdered by Molly Martins in his home in North Carolina, trying to make a new start and a new life for himself and his family. That was taken away from him by a murderer named Molly Martins, who was so many bad things. One of the things that she is not a part of and never will be is the Corbett family. She has put this burden on our family and it won't be lifted until she is put away. That's where she belongs. My dad will not be forgotten. He will be remembered by his good life, how he made everyone feel good about themselves, how he was there for you if you needed him, how he always focused on the positive, how he was the best dad ever and the best friend, brother and son ever. Molly Martins will not be forgotten as well. She will always be remembered as the woman who killed her husband for no reason. She will be remembered as a murderer. Can't imagine like thinking, I mean, my son is about the same age that Jack was when this went down and 
they're, they're so little. I mean, they're kind of at that place between a boy and a man and all those emotions. And that's when they need their father. The mess. Yeah. And it was, it was ripped away from him. Literally ripped away from him. Judge Lee sentenced both Tom and Molly to 20 to 25 years in prison. They were then led from the courtroom in handcuffs to start their sentences. Tom is now inmate 155-3797 at Alexander Correctional Institute, just outside of Taylorsville, North Carolina. It is a 1,000-bed facility that has units for security risk prisoners and inmates with chronic medical conditions and mental health issues. Molly is now inmate number 155-1729 at the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women in Raleigh, North Carolina. Since Molly has been incarcerated, she's had four infractions, one as recently as July 20th, 2020, which was no threat contraband. Right. So Molly's being typical, typical Molly, Molly in prison. Even in prison. <laughs> Both Tom and Molly's attorneys filed a motion for appropriate relief on August 16, 2017. The motion to overturn their convictions alleged some jurors, including the foreman, engaged in misconduct. Post-trial, voluntary press interviews and social media posts of certain jurors portray juror misconduct throughout the proceeding that directly violates the court's repeated jury admonitions, North Carolina law, and the constitutional protections afforded these and all defendants in a criminal trial. Davidson County prosecutors filed papers asking the judge to dismiss the motion. They stated that the defense did not provide evidence of misconduct. According to law, jurors cannot impeach their verdict except in limited circumstances, which include bribery or intimidation or attempts at such. Additionally, the defense's motion did not include any affidavits from jurors. On December 1st, 2017, the judge ruled against the defense's motion to grant Tom and Molly a new trial. On September 14th, 2018, Tom and Molly's attorneys filed an appeal to overturn their convictions. The appeal, filed with the North Carolina Court of Appeals, cites a number of issues, including allegations of jury misconduct, the testimony of the blood spatter expert, the exclusion of the children's statements made in North Carolina, and the statement regarding Tom Martin's state of mind on the day of the incident. On February 4, 2020, the North Carolina Court of Appeals overturned Tom and Molly's convictions and ordered a new trial. The judges were split two to one on the ruling, which means the prosecutors have the right to appeal the decision to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Although defendants raised 13 issues on appeal, many of which are interconnected and complex, this case is deceptively simple, boiling down to whether defendants lawfully used deadly force to defend themselves and each other during the tragic altercation with Jason, the court said in its decision. Having, having thoroughly reviewed the record and transcript, it is evident that this is the rare case in which certain evidentiary errors alone and in the aggregate were so prejudicial as to inhibit defendants' ability to present a full and meaningful defense. The court said that the judge made a number of prejudicial errors, including the decision to exclude Jack and Sarah's statements made in North Carolina, that the testimony from the blood spatter experts should have been excluded, and to give an instruction on what is known as the aggressor doctrine to the jury. 
That means that a defendant cannot raise a claim of self-defense if there is sufficient evidence that he or she may have been the aggressor. The court did dismiss the allegations of jury misconduct. So that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot to take in there. Yeah, but pretty much they're going to have a new trial. Fortunately, though, which I'll tell you the next part, on February 25th, 2020, the North Carolina Supreme Court granted a temporary stay of the North Carolina Court of Appeals ruling. The stay prevents any new trial from starting in Davidson County while the appeal process is underway. Additionally, Tom and Molly, this is the best part, have to stay in prison through the appeal process. It could take a year or more for the North Carolina Supreme Court to rule on the state's appeal. So, thank goodness. They get they to, stay to stay in prison. Oh, can you imagine them walking the street? No way. Today, both Jack and Sarah are doing very well. Jack is now 15 and Sarah is now 13. Jack is a talented singer and songwriter who enjoys playing rugby. And we'll be sure to put a little clip of a YouTube post of him singing. His voice is absolutely gorgeous. He is really, really, he's a beautiful singer. Absolutely beautiful. And Sarah is a young author who recently published her first book. This book helps children deal with grief. And Bless her. It, it's oh. the sweetest book. Um, it's about um, a little bear named Noodle. Oh. It's really cute. That's precious. And we'll also put a link to the book on the website for anyone who might be interested in looking into that. Jason's sister, Tracy, and her husband, David, are raising the children in Limerick, Ireland. So as we close out on our very first episode, well, actually our second, but part two of our very first, (laughs) we would like to leave you with an old Irish blessing. And this happened to be one of Jason's favorites. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face, the rain fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Wow. That was really intense, especially at the end there. The um, Irish blessing, I believe it's called, always makes me tear up. So... It's a a good one. Yeah, you guys really did an awesome job covering that and really, um, you know, celebrating Jason and and his family in the end there. All right, so thank you everyone for listening this week. References for today's episode can be found on our website. Be sure to follow us on social media, including Instagram and Facebook. Also, be sure to join our discussion group, True Crime Mamas Discussions. In this group, we will unpack the case from this week, and you all can share your ideas and thoughts on the case. We also want to announce the start of our Patreon page. Those who join the Patreon page get different benefits, like swag, episodes a day early, and other cool announcements. Money from Patreon will go to help cover the production costs so that we can keep doing these podcasts giveaways, and eventually we hope to be able to donate to organizations like Crime Stoppers and other victims' funds. We hope to see you next week.